You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit crosspointchurchtx.org. Over a little bit this summer and seeing new faces and introducing, so it's good to be back with you. We've been in a series entitled Weird, where we're studying the life of Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and the idea of this study is to understand that, that God is in control even when we can't see or under, even believe that he's in control of our situation. And because Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego were some leaders in a royal court in Judah in southern Israel, and then they were made captives in a whole other one. And so their life wasn't going according to their plan or what they had dreamed and thought it was, but God was still in control in the midst of that. And so and continuing that idea of God's sovereignty. And then what does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to stand for Jesus in a culture that doesn't stand Jesus? And I think we see that off and on throughout the day and week. And even at times, Christians will take stands that are actually contrary to Jesus. And so this idea of weird is a, the biblical idea of strange, supernatural, extraordinary character when life presents us opportunities to stand for Jesus or to not. And let's be honest, as we're in a culture that's changing, we're in a world where we have opportunities to stand strong and to stand for our faith, and it is weird to stand strong against culture and to say, I know everyone else is saying this or doing this, but it is contrary to who my God is and what God wants me to do and say, and so I'm going to either say nothing or I'm going to stand strong right here. And so over the last few weeks, as we looked at Daniel, there's several things that have propped out. In Daniel chapter 1, we saw these young guys that are about 15 years of age say, hey, we're going to eat a special diet that will allow us to be healthy, and we will not be eating things that have been offered to idols or to other gods other than Yahweh. We don't want to get caught up into all of that. And so we see them being faithful in the small things and God honoring that and raising them up into positions of some authority and power and of good faith. And then in Daniel chapter 2, we see where God gives Daniel the opportunity to interpret a dream and the things that, again, promotions and the things that come from this. And the thread through all of these things is that God is sovereign and he's teaching Nebuchadnezzar and he's teaching us that God is working and that no matter how powerful we are, no matter how much education we are, no matter what position in life we think we've reached, God is still in control. And the very reason that you have the job, the very reason that you have the education, the very reason that we have the things that we have are not of ourselves, but of gifts from him. So we even think about it, I mean, you didn't get to choose your parents. Some of you are like, I wish I could have. I'd have chose differently, right? Um, you didn't get to choose what nation you were born in. You didn't get to choose which era you were born in. I mean, some of you, you could have been born in, in, in a different age and how that would have changed. God chose you to be born at the time that you were born, in the place that you were born, by the parents that you were born, and everything about your life, God has been a part of it. He's not surprised that you're here today in this place doing what you're doing in here or online because He is sovereign. He orchestrates. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, and He's not surprised by anything because He's God. And if He is surprised and He's not in control of all this, then He's not God. That's Something else. And so Daniel and Meshach and all his buddies 
are a part of helping Nebuchadnezzar learn that although he's the king of kings at the time, even though he's the most powerful man in the world, he's only that because God has gifted him that. And so even last week we saw that he had a fire before him and that the three young men looked at it and said, fire or no fire. We could pretend to worship and not go into the fire or we can go through the fire and stand to the allegiance of Yahweh Adonai. And they chose to go in the fire and God, as we know, brought them out. The son of God was in the fire with them and they came out. And even with all of their clothes on, not even the hint of smoke was on them. Which again speaks to the power of God will walk in the fires of life with us and will come out on the end. Not for our glory, but for his. And so that's continuing that story. Today we're, it's really a pretty simple passage. As a matter of fact, it's one of those ones that I'm, when I preach and I'm like, it's really simple. Like, hey, listen, pride comes before the fall, the end. Okay? But there's a powerful story to be illustrated that I want us to get, and there's some principles along the way that I think true that we can help ourselves and that we can help our friends, our life group, so that pride in those moments will, we can maybe help set that off and set the course a little differently so they don't fall and we don't fall because of that. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 5 says this way, the Lord detests the proud, which is a very strong, it's not, it's almost hate, okay, dislikes very strongly. The Lord detests the proud for they will surely be punished. Because there's several times all throughout scripture where the question is, and I don't know if you've had this question, but, but God, how come the evil people seem to prosper? How come those people get that and I'm obedient and I get this. And he's like, because I planned it that way. And I know your heart. And if you were over here, you would be more eviler. And I'm like, okay. Proverbs eighteen twelve: Haughtiness or pride goes before destruction. Humility precedes honor. The wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think that God is dead. In other words, it's about me. I can find the solution. God's not in control. God can't help me. Isaiah 2.17, human pride will be humbled and human arrogance will be brought down. You see the theme all throughout. Pride will come fall. When we raise ourselves up, we will fall. Pride is self-deceit. What it is, is this idea that somewhere in our heart, in our life, we're struggling with shame. We're struggling with the image that we see looking back in the mirror. And so there's a shame with it. There's a pain. There's a regret for whatever decisions or where we're at in life. And so because pride is self-deceit, what we do is we then judge other people. We remove ourselves from the court of God and put others in our court where we're the determiners of what's good and evil. And so we look at other people and say, well, at least I'm not them. At least I don't struggle with that. At least my kids don't do that. So that as we're struggling with our own shame and stuff, we raise ourselves up by putting people down. Because we've been in the court of what God has put before us and he shows us, hey, here's some things you need to be doing some work on. And you're like, whoa, 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 but look at those people. Those evil people are prospering. And God's 
dealing with you. We try to flip the script. So in Daniel chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read through all of it, and it's going to repeat in a couple places, so just bear with me, and we'll point out a few things. King Nebuchadnezzar sent, and here he's kind of, again, remind, remember, this is the greatest kingdom of all kingdoms at the time, and so it covers a lot of area. And so all the nations and all the tribes and all the tongues, are, whenever he talks, it's not just to this little space, it goes out and it travels, okay? And so King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world that was known, and that was his kingdom. He had the authority to speak to them, and he says this, Peace and prosperity to you. I want you to know all about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God had performed for me. So he's just come out of Daniel chapter 3 where he's seen these guys get on the fire and have smoke. So he's kind of given a little testimony like, hey, man, this God's a good God. He's done some crazy things. How great are his signs? How powerful his wonders? His kingdom will last forever. His rule through all generations. I, Nebuchadnezzar, am living in in my palace in comfort. And prosperity. So he's kind of flipping. He's, here's the thing you need to know about Nebuchadnezzar is he's a polytheist. In other words, he doesn't just believe in one God. He believes in multiple gods. So even though in Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3, he sees the power and, and, and everything about the Most High God that he's learned at this point, even after the guys come out of the fire, he's like, ooh, I can add that God to my collection of other gods. Okay, so that's where he's at. So even though he's proclaiming true things about the Most High God, Yahweh, he's added him to his collection of gods. And we'll see that here continuing on, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in the palace in comfort and prosperity. He's the king of kings. He's got a really nice place. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. He didn't have Mexican food the night before. All right? He just had a dream. God showed up. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling in all of the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. And we're seeing this. This is a habit. These guys are the pros. These guys have studied. They've gone to Yale and Harvard of dream interpretation, and they haven't been able to interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. So what does he do? He brings in the untrained guy who's been gifted by God to interpret dreams because the dreams are coming from the one that Daniel's talking to. At last, Daniel came in before me and he told me his dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Again, he's a polytheist. He's adding it to his deal. And I said to him, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. And then he tells him his dream. While I was lying in my bed, this was what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves, and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, and the birds nested in its branches, and the world was fed from this tree. Then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. The messenger shouted, Cut down the tree and lop off its branches. Shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground. Bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. 
For seven periods of time, let him have a mind of a wild animal instead of a mind of a human. Now that word mind is literally means, is literally heart. Okay, And so the translation for us is mind is because in those days, whenever they said heart, that was the seat of reason. That was where their will and their motivation, the thoughts came from the heart. And so the mind is this. And interestingly enough, there is a psychological disorder like this called lycanthropy. Now, lycanthropy has been throughout the ages, has been found to be true, and there's still people that struggle with this, that have this disorder. And it's an interesting disorder because somewhere along the way, your mind flips, changes, does whatever it does, to the chemicals, and you believe that you're a cow, a gerbil, a rabbit, a whatever, and you begin to live in that way. And there's still people that are being studied and researched and trying to figure out how in the world does this, has it happened historically, continues to happen today. The interesting piece to this is that most of the time is that when someone has this disorder, they're able to function normally in the other places of their life. Okay, so imagine with me, if you will, someone who thinks that they're a gerbil will maybe run to the hamster wheel and do with the things that gerbils do, and then someone will say, hey, can you go to the taco shack and order tacos? And they'll be like, yeah, I'll be back in a minute. So it's one of those things we don't get, we don't grasp, we don't fully do it, but this makes sense in light of the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to end up with this lycanthropy, this, this m- m- mental disorder, but his kingdom won't completely fall down because in some way, somehow, he's still able to make some decisions and have some normal conversations, okay? so But his mind, his seat of his reason is changing in this moment. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It's commanded by the Holy One so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He, Yahweh, gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of peoples. It's interesting. He's setting the stage. Yahweh is setting the stage of your only reason that you're king. The only reason that you have this kingdom. The only reason you have this power. The only reason that you have this place that you live. All this stuff is because I, Yahweh, have gifted it to you. And I can take away that gift. Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. And now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me because the spirit of the holy gods live in you, with you. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, was overcome for a time and frightened by the meaning of the dream. This is a principle for us. Is that when we're doing life with people... There are going to be moments where we have to tell the truth and love. And this is where Daniel is at. Now, the consequences for Daniel for telling the truth and love, that if the king doesn't like the truth in love, he can lop off his head. Now, for us, there's going to be moments with friends, people that we love, people we've done life with, that the Spirit of God tells us, and we know that there's something we need to have a deep conversation with this friend that we love to share the truth because we see in them that they are heading down a path. There's some pride. There's some, some sin stuff in their life, and we need to be a part of helping stop it and love so that they do not fall. But many times we don't. We say that we love, but our love stops at telling the truth because we're afraid of losing a friend. 
But if we really think about it, that if our friend continues down the path and we don't speak the truth, we're going to lose our friend anyway. And they're going to have pain, shame, regret, hurts, loss of relationships, loss of jobs, loss of different stuff because we haven't stepped in. And not that we have the answers, but there are friends and true friends stand together back to back and say, we're going to fight together to get through this instead of stabbing. So we have a tendency to either stab or to walk away. And to hope that it's not going to happen. And here Daniel has that moment. He's frightened and overcome because if he tells the truth, it could cost him. And the same is true for us. And so here the king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream. The king tells him he comforts him. Tell me what it means. He wants the truth or he thinks he wants the truth. Belteshazzar replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in the dream would happen to your enemies, Lord. And not to you. The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. The wild animals lived in its shade and the birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. Now, one of the things you also need to understand is you. Why would God be giving this king a dream about plants? We understand that the city of Babylon has two of the world's seven wonders, and one of those wonders is the greatest garden that's ever been, the Hanging Gardens. So this King Nebuchadnezzar looked off. The One of the things that he had done for his wife was built the greatest garden that had ever been built, and there's multi-tiered and all the different depictions of it. It's just a gargantuan garden that he and his wife could enjoy. And so it makes sense in this moment when you have that picture in mind. It's like this guy knows gardens. He knows what it costs to plant a garden. He knows the trees. In his mind, he's probably seeing exactly what tree it was that could grow to the greatest heights and have the greatest shade. He understands it. And so here, God is using language that is very familiar and concepts that are very familiar to Nebuchadnezzar. That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great and your greatness reaches up to the heavens and your rule to the ends of the earth. And then you saw a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, cut down that tree and destroy it. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals in the field for seven periods of time. This is what the dream means, your majesty. What the Most High has declared will happen to the Lord, the King. You'll be driven from high society, from human society, and you will live with the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow, and you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way, until you learn, King Nebuchadnezzar, the King of Kings, until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. And gives to them anyone he chooses. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful for the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. So in the midst of this, there's a condition. And this is how God has continued throughout Scripture and even in our own lives. That there's conditions that if we'll do this respond to this truth, then there will be life. But if we don't respond, then there's going to be consequences. And here King Nebuchadnezzar is presented with that. And we'll see this a moment that it's a period of time of almost 12 months. 
And this 12 months, this period of time where there's a condition, it allows for us to be transformed, to consider our situation, and to respond to it. So Romans 2.4 calls it the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's his long suffering before discipline takes place. It's the fatherly voice that continues to say, please clean your room. Please do your chores. Please do these things. Please be kind. The fatherly voice that continues because he knows that if you'll turn from your wicked ways, if you'll turn from going this direction and walk in 180 degrees, that it will be life-giving to you. And it's long-suffering that he walks with us to turn us back to life. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And here in verse 28 it says, But all these things did happen to Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, he had a moment, he had a time that he could have repented and changed and went in a different direction, but he didn't. So 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And as he looked across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my own residence to display my majestic splendor. Now, a few things that you need to know what he was looking at. As he's standing on his roof, he would have had the highest place in the city. So he's at the high point. So he's walking on his roof, but he's able to see the entire city all around. 360 degree view of his entire city. Babylon at the time was the biggest city ever known to man. It encapsulated two of the world's seven wonders. It had the wonderful hanging gardens that he had built. It was in a rectangular, it was built rectangular and it was over five miles that it was taken up. Okay, so this is a huge city. It had walls that were so thick, all right, that a a chariot with four horses could not just run down it, but could actually turn around. So that's a wide wall over 40 feet high. And that was wall number one with a moat around it. He had inner walls all throughout the city that were just as big, just as grandeur. And so as he looks over the city, there had never been a city like this. There was a reason to have pride. There was a reason to say, look at this. Nothing has ever been like this before. But the deal was like he didn't do it. It wasn't his alone. I mean, think about the people that it took to do this. Think about all the work and everything. Think about the taxes that he had to raise. And one of the things was that he had driven his people into poverty so that he could look over his splendor. And so he did look over the greatest city, but at what cost? As he looked across the city, he said, look at this great place. Babylon was massive. But Proverbs sixteen eighteen, pride comes before what? Destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Verse 31. While these words were still in his mouth. Look at my city. A voice called down from heaven and said, Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You'll be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live like this way until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of this world and gives them to who? Anyone he chooses. Seen this verse repeated over and over, right? The same hour the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society and ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. 
I think this is a verse that verifies that mullets are okay. I don't know. Just kidding. I'm trying to help my brothers out with a mullet that look really bad. But here's the interesting thing. In Nebuchadnezzar's kingly chronicles, he leaves this part out. There's a little absence in his writings. But there's writings of others around that have captured this. There's actually a Qumran text for sure that's specific to the fact that there's a a prayer of King Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the things about this prayer is it says that there was a Jewish diviner who helped King Nebuchadnezzar overcome his mental state. Wonder who that Jewish diviner could have been. That Daniel was the one to give the message, but he didn't leave him. His friend went crazy, went into trouble, but he stayed with him. Because he was his king, and he knew what God was doing, and he stayed with him in the midst of this. He didn't have to stay, but he stayed. He told him the truth, and his friend didn't repent, but he stayed after him. Even though his friend sometimes maybe embarrassed him, he stayed with him. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Looked up to heaven, my sanity returned, and I praise and worship the Most High, and honor the one who lives forever. I think what's interesting again in this is there's a principle of we have a tendency and pride to look down at the things that we own or that we think that we possess. Like King Nebuchadnezzar, he was at a high spot and he looked over others and he's saying, This is mine, this is mine, this is mine, but in the moment, of true heart transformation. He wasn't looking down because he had nothing. God had to take it all away so that his eyes would look up. And there's times for one of the things that I hear from people consistently, many times when they're in a the hospital, one of the first things that they say to me, Pastor, the reason that I'm here is not because of my heart, not because of whatever, but because God needed to get my attention. I needed to stop and I needed to look up. So Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven, his viewpoint changed, and his sanity returned. And I praised and worshiped the Most High God and honored the one who lives forever. And here's what he said in light of that. He said, his rule, Yahweh's rule, is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? That's not my plan, God. When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor, the glory of being king and his kingdom. So he actually got back everything that he had lost. And then listen to this. My advisors and nobles sought me out. Who would seek out a crazy man? And I was restored to the head of the kingdom, even greater honor than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. Because his acts are just. And his way is true. And he is able to humble the proud. The king wins victories, but Yahweh is the one that gives them. The king understands his dreams, but Yahweh is the one who gives him the understanding and the wisdom. The king cannot harm 
his kids, he cannot even put a smell on them unless Yahweh hands them over. And even then, it's a beautiful passage I want to read to you. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Now, again, like there's this thing called pride, and most of the time our pride is self-pride. There's also something that sometimes we live with called shame. Any of you ever had shame? And sometimes, and actually many times, our shame is a false shame. It's a shame that we receive because of what the culture tells us or someone else who tells us a half-truth or whatever. The shame here that King Nebuchadnezzar experienced was redemptive shame. A shame that came from God that his sins were laid bare before him. And whenever he saw that, his sins made him look up to heaven and it transformed his heart. And that is the shame that we experience when we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross. That we are overwhelmed with shame over the depths of our sin. And not to feel bad for ourselves, that that's, that's a human sorrow, but to understand that our sin, our disobedience is what drove Jesus to the cross and that he looked out over us and said, I know what you've done, I know what you're going to do, and I still give my life for you. And so that in our shame, our sins being laid bare, we can be redeemed and bought out. And that we can go from being naked to wearing the king's clothes. The most beautiful coat that there could be. And sit at the king's table and sup and dine with him and have conversation with him. That once before our shame drove us to walk by the king's table to go back to the back and to dig out of the scraps out of the dumpster. And he says, no, 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 not my children. The shame I allow you to have drives you to the king's table to sit and to dine with me. For our pride's a distorted conception of our self-worth. Again, those moments where we look in the mirror and we see shame and we begin to say, at least I'm not like them, at least I'm not like them. Shame from God comes and it drives our eyes here and says, I'm not him. And I thank God that I'm not, but I know that he's given me Jesus. And in him, I go to my knees and I'm like, I have him. So this morning, what's God showing you? What's he teaching all of us? This is the great sin. The very beginning of Genesis, what happens? Adam and Eve in their sin fall. The evil one, the reason that he is who he is, is because in his pride he fell out of heaven. All throughout scripture. Reasons people fall. Why? Thinking that they're God and he's not. And they fall. All of us. This is a daily, if not by hour, struggle for us. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, we admit many times in our shame of our self-worth, whatever we're struggling with identity, we open up our own court and cast shadows 
and judgment and shame on others so that we can put our place in your place and be the judge of all or of many. Father, I pray that we would not find our identity in being the judge and jury of others, but we would find our identity in the one that has received grace and mercy. And that when the judge of judges has put down his gavel, he says, you are free from all sin because of my son, Jesus. Father, I pray for us in this room as we even think about, hey, where, where we raise ourselves up and put others down, Father, that you would just give us redemptive shame in those areas. That you would draw our eyes not from others, but from you. And may our eyesight and our heart set be changed. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Cross Point Community Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. For more about Cross Point Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org. Have a great week.